Good evening, everybody. Tonight I'd like to talk about generosity and gratitude. Thank goodness purification is not only dukkha. There's also the emergence, the unfolding of beautiful qualities that, that you're all seeing in your own ways as your weeks here unfold. So gratitude and generosity are qualities that express themselves naturally as the heart and mind awaken. And these are also qualities that can be cultivated deliberately as, as real supports for our happiness and for our deepest freedom. These qualities, I heard somebody refer to them as first cousins. They, they go together. And our capacity to feel gratitude has a lot to do with our capacity to really, to really feel happiness, to connect with the goodness, the blessings that are showing themselves in our lives. And as we talk about over and over again, our capacity to be generous is, is such a um, core part of this Dharma path and such really a deep expression of our understanding. I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver called Philip's Birthday. I gave to a friend that I care for deeply something that I loved. It was only a small, extremely shapely bone that came from the ear of a whale. It hurt a little to give it away. The next morning I went out as usual at sunrise and there in the harbor was a swan. I don't know what he or she was doing there, but the beauty of it was gift. Do you see what I mean? You give and you are given. So this is very much the stream of our lives. It's like an in-breath, and an out-breath at work over and over again, whether we're aware of it or not. And opening to this flow of giving and receiving, of generosity and gratitude, really connects us with the flow of our lives. It connects us with a deeper sense of interdependence, interbeing, the this larger understanding of our lives that the teachers have been pointing to, that Winnie pointed to a few nights ago. And it's really such a different message than the culture that, that most of us live in, the, the culture of me, the culture where our experience is referenced around this fundamental understanding of I have. I was thinking about the people I know who I feel like are truly happy, maybe not perfectly happy, but who live with a lot of contentment, a fair bit of ease in the way that they come to their lives. And the happiest people I know, and these are people not just happy in a, in a worldly sense, not just people who may have pleasant conditions in their lives, but people who are um, happy in, in a deeper way, they are naturally giving people. They are naturally 
grateful people. There's a sense that they are really entering their lives, tasting their lives fully, participating in their lives. Ajahn Sumedho says that our practice is not to follow our hearts. Our practice is to train our hearts. So in cultivating these qualities, we are really opening to a, a training, and it's, it's good news that these qualities can be trained, because you've probably seen, especially on the gratitude end, on a retreat like this, it really does go up and down. But as we, as we connect more and more with the moments of our lives, gratitude becomes a natural response. We're really training our hearts and minds in the direction of responsiveness, in the direction of empathy and connectedness. I think of, of generosity and gratitude kind of like metta as being, being cohesive qualities, qualities that guide us to notice how deeply we are living in relationship together, how deeply we impact one another, and how we show up really does make a difference. The Buddha said that gratitude is one of the highest protections against negativity in the mind. And when you think about it, a, a grateful heart, a moment of gratitude, it's, it's a joyful heart. You might just take a moment now and just gently bring to mind something you're grateful for, whether it was the tasty cake at lunch yesterday, <laughs> or the, the brilliant display of leaves outside, or someone somewhere in your life that is supporting you in coming here to do this practice for six weeks or three months. So just take a moment, and as you, as you sense something you're grateful for, just notice Notice the effect it has on your body. Notice your belly and your heart. You might find that you, that you settle a little more. I notice when I feel gratitude, my, my belly feels full. My belly feels like, oh, I've just had a a tasty, nourishing meal, and my, my heart and mind relax, and there's a sense of enoughness, a sense of sufficiency. And this is actually a very good place to practice from, because when we are connected with our, an experience of enoughness, an experience of, in a moment, not needing more, there's, there's less clinging. It's a good place from which to develop concentration, a good place from which to get to know the different flavors of awareness. And so maybe the Buddha spoke about gratitude as a protection because in a moment of gratitude, we are not feeding our great uh, potential for dissatisfaction. Something else is at work when we're feeling grateful. And this potential for dissatisfaction, I'm sure you've gotten familiar with it, these weeks, it, it's when, when we really pay attention, it's amazing how, well, how great this potential really is. It's, it's amazing how the mind can, over and over and over again, find some problem, something that's not quite right, that's not quite enough, that needs to be more. 
the truth is we're all living here with our basic requisites met. There's three beautiful meals served every day. Everybody has their own bed and place to sleep. We have access to medical care if we need it. We have everything we really need in that way to support us in doing what we're here to do, to support us in practicing the Dhamma. And so some of this dissatisfaction manifests internally. Our stories about how the practice maybe should be unfolding differently. We each have our own version of this or story about how we should be different or about how our neighbor should be different or about, about how the teaching should be different or about how um, the retreat may not be how you thought it would be. And so there's this, this continual <laughs> engine of dissatisfaction that probably as a species was very adaptive to us at one point. When, if we were living out on the savanna, having to really watch for predators, watch for tigers, this tendency to look for what's wrong maybe kept us safe, physically quite safe. But here, in the yogi land of IMS, <laughs> it's not so helpful. It actually, uh, it actually keeps us suffering more. So in turning, turning the mind's eye toward gratitude, we are learning to inhabit the experience of thank you. At a very early age, we're taught to say thank you. Now, growing up, it's some of the first words, mom, dad, please, thank you. And so something we, we'll, we might say it over and over again, thank you, thank you, thank you. But how often do we actually, I mean, you can't say that very much now. Please don't go start thanking each other or leaving a bunch of appreciation notes or anything like that, or chocolates or flowers on each other's <laughs> shoes. But um, just to let yourselves feel when the impulse is there to just feel, ah, oh, thank you. There's actually a great deal of nourishment that's available from the practice and from the supportive conditions that we find ourselves in. Gratitude is lingering here, lingering, hanging out with the thank you. And sometimes we need to, you're all quite slowed down in many ways. Gratitude, I think of it also as an attentional practice, a slowing down to notice even more some of what we might miss. This afternoon I went to get a cup of tea like I like to do most afternoons with chamomile and agave and milk in it. And I was drinking my tea, thinking about this talk, enjoying the tea a lot, feeling gratitude for the tea, and just the taste of it, the warmth of it, the kind of comfort of it. Then I started to just reflect upon all that goes into making this cup of tea when I really think about it. The chamomile grew somewhere. Somebody probably scattered seeds at some point and tended to the plants. And somehow the flowers were cut and were laid out to dry somewhere. And somehow they came into contact with a place that makes tea bags and the, the dried flowers got put into the tea. And that ended up here. Somebody probably drove it here in some way or flew it here in some way. I was thinking about the, the um, people who take care of our water machines so we can have hot water and what it takes to have water here be drinkable. 
all the people in the town of Barrie and beyond who see to it that we have good, healthy water to drink. So just in a cup of tea, oh, and the cows, <laughs> the cows, the local cows that provide this beautiful milk. You know, so there's, there's the taste of the, of the tea, and there's, there's really, when we pause and reflect for a moment, there's so much to appreciate in terms of the conditions that connect us in these simple acts that we do every day. It's the old adage of, is the glass half full or half empty? You know, I, I think, why not? Why not see the glass as being half full? Because it'll never be completely full and stay full. And if it does become completely full and stays full, you'll probably want another glass and another one and another one and another one because of the mind's tendency for greed. I came here with a book that I like to take um, if I'm going somewhere and I know I might give a Dharma talk. It's, it's a book called Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. And it's written by a man named Gregory Boyle, who's a Jesuit priest. He started Homeboy Industries, a successful, huge nonprofit in LA. And Homeboy Industries was designed as a gang intervention program. And there's a lot of heart-wrenching, actually, tough, beautiful uh, stories of what these men and women go through and the kinds of what, what their journeys are like, the, the strength, triumphs of the heart um, to get out of gang life and live with less danger and violence in their lives. They also run programs for people who are coming out of prison and are wanting to find a job and have supportive conditions in their life to make their next step. And he comes at this work with such a deep devotion to be of service and a lot of spiritual understanding guiding him. So he speaks, he's, um, he speaks in terms of God, that's his faith. So you'll hear the word God here, but this is just a little, a little uh, piece from his book about seeing if the glass is half full or half empty. He says, as we bask in God's attention, our eyes adjust to the light and we begin to see as God does. Then, quite unexpectedly, we discover what Mary Oliver calls the music with nothing playing. It's an essential tenet of Buddhism that we can begin to change the world first by changing how we look at the world. The Second Council of Vatican Fathers simply decided to change the opening words of their groundbreaking encyclical, Gaudium et Spes. That's in Latin. I obviously don't quite know how to pronounce it. Originally, it read, speaking of the world, the grief and the anguish. Then they just decided to cross out those words and famously inserted instead the joy and the hope. No new data had rushed in on them and the world hadn't changed suddenly. They just chose in a heartbeat to see the world differently. They hadn't embraced all of a sudden Pollyannaism. They had just put on a whole new set of eyewear. One of my favorite examples of this came from a 16-year-old homie and no doubt budding Buddhist, Lorenzo. He settled into a chair in front of my desk, and when I looked up, I saw that he had scratches all over his face, and his two forearms were, were raspberried with scrapes. 
He was pretty much beat up, and I presumed he'd had an encounter with rivals. My God, I say to him, what happened to you? Lorenzo, nonchalant and unbothered, points at his numerous red markings and scabs and dismisses it all with glee. Oh, this? My bike was teaching me how to fly. (laughs) Music with nothing playing. So gratitude is a, is a practice that's, that's ordinary, in a sense, available to us in so many different situations. And when gratitude is cultivated, when we, when we key into what is good and beautiful, generosity is just what happens. Generosity becomes a lot less work. It happens naturally. To know our relationship to gratitude, it's often helpful to look at what gets in the way, to look at where we each get stuck. And kind of two, two patterns emerge as places where we tend to get stuck. And one of them is being really uh, attached to being self-reliant attached to, and I can speak to this because I was born and raised in Fargo, North Dakota, and we really learn how to be self-reliant in the Midwest. Uh, Kind of the sense of no matter what, I can do it on my own. No matter what, I've got it covered. I'm all powerful. And it's it's good to have a sense of agency, a sense of confidence. But when we... um, get so attached to doing it on our own, we actually cut ourselves off from the web of relationship. I have had a a place to observe this in my own life. In recent years, I I have the great good fortune to live in in a home that someone from our sangha basically has offered to me. It's a, it's a, it's a very beautiful home and it's, um, much more luxurious than how I would live if this wasn't offered to me. And a few years ago, I, I was ending a relationship and I was making the decision to move out. And I had put out an email to some different people just, you know, saying, do you guys know of anything in Durango where I live? Word of mouth is the best way for this sort of thing to happen. And a friend of mine who's in the Dharma said, oh, sure, I have a place, Erin. Uh, I have a condo. You can live there. You know, how much can you pay? And I offered some small amount thinking, you know, I would just kind of was at that point, I was traveling a bunch looking for a room with a bed and a small kitchen. And she said, great. And she said, here's the address. Meet me in 15 minutes. And I walked, I walked over there and I went and knocked on the door and I was like, wow, this is a pretty big building. And um, I went in and she brought me in and there just kept being more rooms and more rooms <laughs> and more rooms. And then at the, at the um, other side of it was the river. And, and she said, yeah, she said, Erin, it's yours. She said, you just live here and pay me what you can each month. If I didn't pay her rent, it would be fine too. I do because that feels good to me, but it would, it would truly be fine with her. And um, it was just... It was so much fancier than anything I was expecting. It's much fancier, actually, than anywhere I've ever lived. I don't mind it. I actually (laughs) really like it now (laughs) because I'm used to it. But um, I have really had, not had to, but I've gotten curious about all of this for me because when when I would see 
the woman who offered this to me, I would either go into this pattern of just thanking her profusely, like I, I couldn't shut up about it, words were just pouring out of me. And if I wasn't thanking her profusely and something around the condo came up, I would immediately want to shift the subject with her. I felt speedy, racy, like I just didn't want to talk about it and wanted to go on to something else. So there was a way of I was really having difficulty settling in with her and saying thank you for this offering. And I became aware that that was going on. And so I then started noticing that when I was home, there was this, just this little bit of a tension through the front of my body, just um, like I wasn't entirely letting down. And once I became aware of it, pretty quickly, I, I just started letting myself really enjoy these beautiful, beautiful conditions that have been given to me. And what I came to recognize, you know, because this person said to me, Erin, I'm really offering this to you because of your work with the Dhamma, and it's a way of supporting the Dhamma. And it was like she'd been telling me that for some time, but it didn't go in entirely. And as soon as that went in entirely, something really let go for me, because it's true. Living in this place, I don't need to live in a place like this to be um, supported in the Dhamma, but it really, it does make a difference. It makes a difference to go home to a place that is nurturing and safe and where everything's taken care of and that has the energy of support and generosity behind it. And now I can look at her and just say thank you and mean it and be with her. And it's different between us now because it seems like she feels more satisfied. It feels like she's able to receive a certain joy because I'm receiving the blessing fully. And it's all kind of woken me up to the flow that's happening through this living space. She's offering this to me. I'm here talking to you. It just keeps on going. So that's one way that we can um, block gratitude. Another way is, is feeling entitled. And I think that the sense of entitlement is something on a Buddhist path that we often don't like to see in ourselves. We don't like to admit in ourselves because it doesn't seem like we're good Buddhists if we're entitled. That's just for the big greedy people out there. But when we look closely, most of us have some degree of entitlement at work, some degree of being expected to be given to. And when we expect to be given to, we also don't feel grateful because we take it as our right. It's like, we're, we're like we, when we feel we've been cheated and we deserve it somehow. It's never truly a gift because the expectation gets in the way. This sense of entitlement isn't just personal, it's, it's cultural. In the 1970s, McDonald's had a whole ad campaign around the slogan, you deserve a break today. You deserve it. That's a little different than, than, yeah, I won't say, but you know, you deserve a break today. And in the 1990s, there was uh, an ad campaign, you owe it to yourself to buy a Mercedes Benz. <laughs> okay. And, and so our society continues to bombard us with the message that we are such fantastic people that we are entitled to an equally fantastic way of living. And by nature, 
we are not deserving of all that we want. And where do we even, even, even deserving is an idea, is a judgment. But that because we want something doesn't mean somehow it's supposed to be ours, another belief in the mind. And when we think we're automatically entitled to something, that's when we start walking all over, all over others to get it. Many of you have seen Brini Brown's TED Talks on shame and vulnerability. And she says, what separates privilege from entitlement is gratitude. And to be grateful, we have to be conscious of privilege, conscious of entitlement, um, in order to be grateful um, and to move from entitlement into a clearer seeing that involves gratitude. So in a relative sense, we talk about it, me and mine, giving, receiving. I like how Ajahn Buddhadasa holds this um, from a larger view. He says, we're giving back to nature the things that we have falsely appropriated from it. This mind, these feelings, this body, the breath itself do not really belong to us. When we see that, Instead of feeling deprived of something we thought was ours, we feel a great freedom, the liberation the Buddha promised. So this moves us from the meing and myeing and separation into a larger understanding of being causes and conditions for one another and together. So it's really so special to me, the kind of culture that happens on these retreats and the culture, um, the Buddhist culture all around the world and in our country. Because the larger economic system of our, of our, of our, of this country, it's not all of your country, you may not identify that way, but in this country, it's just, you know, this growth-based economy, meaning that in order to be healthy and be successful, the economy needs to always be growing. It's, it's just the engine of more. And as we come into retreat environments, we, we really see something else. You know, we, we see the power of the precepts we've taken together the power of restraint, the power of enoughness, the power of being together in a way where we are consciously practicing something other than more, more, more. And it does go against our larger cultural conditioning, but not but and, it brings a, such, a, such a deeper sense of safety, a deeper sense of contentment. And so practicing in this way here, um, as you may be opening to experiencing gratitude, you may include just how it is to be really in this field of blessings together, being in community with these shared wholesome commitments. I wanna say in exploring gratitude it's not helpful to use gratitude as a way of avoiding investigating aversion, for example. You know, sometimes, oh, you know, this is uncomfortable. There's some aversion happening. Okay, I'm just gonna go through what I'm grateful for. 
and actually becomes another way, another level of aversion to the experience. So cultivating gratitude, we want to look at the motivation because this path of liberation is, is really, really not one of, it's not liberation through positive thinking. As we know, it's liberation. This is liberation through non-clinging. So gratitude practice is not intended to fix a passing or difficult emotional state. It's more as an addition. And everything does not have to be perfect in your life to feel gratitude. It, it comes from our relationship to what is, not from as soon as you get done with the retreat and you can have the meal you want and you see your partner, okay, then, then it's okay to start with gratitude. So as I was reflecting also upon this quality of, of thankfulness and receiving in the teachings, the word, the word blessing comes up a lot. And when I first came to this practice, I had a hard time with the word blessing. It kind of brought to mind for me some patriarchal figure handing something out if I did things right. And now it's very different for me. The, the word bless in the dictionary is defined as to express or feel gratitude, to thank, a beneficial thing for which one is grateful, or something that brings well-being. And it comes from the old English word blood, which means blood. And it's also related to the word, the word bliss. And so sharing of blessings, sometimes that's a chant that's done in the evening. Blessings part of the metta sutta, part of the meal chant. Blessings are such a regular part of um, our, our rituals together as a community. And it might be worth just reflecting upon how do you, what's your relationship to the idea of, of blessing, of the word blessing? Especially given if it's defined as something that's just something that brings well-being. In the Mahamangala Sutta, the Buddha was asked by a deity this deity came to the Buddha and said that all sorts of deities and people wanting to be happy have pondered on the question of blessings. And he, he asked the Buddha to tell him what the highest blessings are. And I'd like to share these with you. And as I, as I go through these, you might just reflect on how many of these are true for you during your time here on this retreat. And I'm going to... Um, read this partly in my own language so it's a little easier to understand. So how many of these are really, are really here for you now? The first is to spend time in the company of wise people and honor those worthy of honor. To live in a place that's good for you, to do good deeds, to keep yourself going in the right direction. To be well-educated, to develop your skills, to train yourself in discipline, to use words carefully, beautifully. 
to take good care of your family and engage in a livelihood that is not causing harm, to give generously to others and to live with integrity and to care for everyone you consider to be your family. To avoid doing harm, to be, to abstain from intoxicants and to develop wholesome states of mind. To be respectful, humble, content, and regularly bring spiritual teachings into your life. To be patient, open to learning, to be in touch with people on a spiritual path and to discuss the teachings. To live simply and in a holy way, to understand the deepest truth and realize the highest freedom and happiness. To have a mind that's steady and unswayed by the ups and downs of life. And the Buddha says, those who have fulfilled the conditions for such blessings are victorious everywhere and attain happiness everywhere. To them, these are the highest blessings. And it strikes me really with this list, we're living in one way or another in the presence of most of these blessings. And he didn't just say, oh, these are nice. He actually said these are the highest blessings. So tuning in to the blessings that are here, MJ Ryan says, gratitude is like a flashlight. It lights up what's already there. You don't necessarily have anything more or different, but suddenly you can actually see what is. And because you can see, you no longer take it for granted. So in this way, gratitude is, is part of clear seeing. When we're seeing clearly, it's what makes sense. And sometimes when the practice is hard, sometimes when there's a lot of dukkha and you find yourself working it and the difficulty isn't letting up, it, it can be helpful to just step back and let yourself take in really this field of merit that we're sitting in the middle of. Without this kind of gratitude, generosity really becomes a burden and so it's not expressed in its fullness. This is a piece of news that Alex, who is here the first three weeks, shared with me. Carol spoke last night about how, how much tough stuff we hear in the news and that, and that so many beautiful acts are happening all the time, but they're usually not on the front page of the paper. So this is a story from It Wasn't All Bad, which is a section of a paper called The Week. When Kayla Millard died in an ATV accident in 2004, his parents decided to donate his organs. That decision wound up saving the life of Janice McKinnon's 19-year-old son who needed a new pancreas to treat his type 1 diabetes. The two families became friends, and when Calum's father was recently diagnosed with kidney failure, Janice volunteered to become a donor. You don't say thank you when someone opens a door for you, McKinnon says. There are no words to say this. Such a beautiful act of, of generosity, of gratitude, and then of more generosity.
sometimes we, we may feel that we don't really have much to be generous with. And everyone sitting in this room has something to be generous with, more than something, many things. Whether it's our time or material resources or wisdom, just the act of, of refraining uh, from interacting with one another in an ordinary way is a kind of generosity that supports our practices together. And often in, in speaking about the practice of dana, it can seem like a, like a superficial teaching. Oh, I've, you know, I've heard this so many times, let's get on with it. And there's nothing superficial about it. It's central, it's core to making these teachings available. It is the, it is the understanding of non-clinging, going from a closed fist to an open hand. And you probably know that dana, along with sila and bhavana, is one of the actual pillars of the dharma, one of the kind of the, the bedrock upon which the, the dharma rests. When we consider the bodhisattva vow, such a deep expression of generosity and understanding. So just like uh, looking at the obstacles to gratitude, it can be helpful to look at the obstacles to generosity. And I think one of the biggest obstacles to generosity, in addition to our delusion, is really just our fear. Our fear of letting go. Our fear that we won't have enough. I explored this for myself. I was um, remembering when I was at the airport. This must have been before September 11th, 2001, uh, because the security was different when, when this happened. And I had flown into Durango and my luggage had not gotten on my flight. And so I drove home and several hours later, I went back to the airport to pick up my luggage. And when I was going to pick up my luggage, there was this woman standing near the, the United counter. She was crying and she was speaking in a very loud voice. And she wasn't speaking English, and there were a couple of men talking to her. And I just paused to kind of check out what, what it was that was going on. I realized she was speaking Spanish, and I don't speak fluent Spanish, but I, I can speak enough Spanish to kind of have basic communication. And nobody who was talking to her spoke Spanish, and so I just went up and I said, you know, what's the problem? And she said, I thought I was going to Durango, Mexico to see my family. And she wasn't, she, was, she ended up, I mean, I thought, how scary would that be to expect to have your family that speak your language greeting you with open arms and to, you know, show up in this tiny little airport in the mountains where it's cold and snowy. <laughs> and, um, and the thought came into my mind, well, I could just, you know, I can help her. What, you know, what does she need? And I thought, no, 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 Erin. It was late at night. It was like 1130 at night. There were no more flights out of Durango that night. And you can't really sleep overnight in the Durango airport. And I thought, don't do that, Erin. You, you don't know her. Anything could happen. And I stayed there talking with her some more. And it was really clear she had nowhere to go. And I just thought, I thought, you know, I know how it is to be traveling alone in a foreign country. I know how vulnerable it can be. And I said to her, well, you can come home with me. And she said, okay. And so she got in the car. Again, I, I really barely spoke enough to kind of have the basics of communication down with her. And, and she, was, she was visibly, you know, um, scared, really nervous, I can understand, going home with a woman you don't know from another country. And 
um, she ended up spending the night at my house that night. And I lived in a place that was it's a little bigger than the interview. It's about the size of Joseph's interview room where I was living, <laughs> really. And there was, you know, my bed and this little couch and she slept and she was making all these phone calls to her family on my phone. I had no idea what kind of a bill was being racked up. <laughs> and I couldn't, I didn't know enough Spanish to say to her, you know, this is going to cost me. And, um, <laughs> and so um, anyway, we, we, we both eventually went to sleep and woke up and had some coffee and I took her back to the airport and I never heard from her again. But I noticed how, how the initial impulse was to help her. And then right after that was a whole slew of really good reasons not to. And I was really glad that I made the choice I did because thinking about it today, it still makes me happy. Thinking about it today, I still feel really good um, that, that what came through in that moment was to take a risk. And often we have so many impulses to be generous, we just don't act on them. We just miss them. And so paying attention to impulses to be generous and actually acting on them for a period of time can really be cause for, well, for me, quite a bit of happiness, actually. The, the, the Buddha says that we receive actually three happinesses in a single act of generosity, one in forming the intention to be generous, like planning how it might be to buy a gift for somebody and thinking about them. And the second is in the actual giving of the gift, the giving of your time, whatever it is. And the third is in the remembering. And so sometimes I just let myself reflect on, on my own good deeds. You might do that too, not during one of your sittings. But um, it, it's helpful to reflect on our own good deeds. That was actually taught as, as a practice. The, the great teacher, Punjaji says this, he says, he says, there's no such thing as generosity. There's only the awareness of need and the natural impulse of the heart to address it. If you're hungry and your hand puts food in your mouth, you don't think of the hand as generous, do you? If people in front of you are hungry and you feed them, it's the same, isn't it? I love that. So deep generosity comes from this kind of understanding, not so much me being generous to you, but the natural response, because you and I are not perceived as being inherently separate or as existing without being conditions for one another. We, we bow a lot here on retreat together. And you might just be aware of of when you bow, are you, are you mindful of, of, of why, why you're bowing? Is it something you just kind of do because you're supposed to? Or, or is, there, um, is there a wish? Is there a blessing there for you? And I often, with bowing, it, for me it really is like one hand of gratitude and one hand of generosity coming together. You know, gratitude for the teachings, gratitude for the refuges, and generosity, you know, the, the, the deep wish that that this is of benefit to all beings. The two, the two go together and they may go together for you too when you bow.
I'll end with another story. Gratitude and generosity at work. A dear Dharma friend shared this with me too. And this is by Naomi Nye. Another story about being in an airport. Wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal after learning my flight had been delayed four hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate A4 understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate A4 was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight would be late, and she did this. I stopped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly. I don't speak this language, but I'm going to read what is written on these pages. I guess, I guess she said, Shudoa, Shubiruk, Habiti, Stani Shwey, Minfadlik, Shubitsewi, and the minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day. I said, no, we're fine. You'll get there just later. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son, and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother until we got on the plane and would ride next to her on Southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. <laughs> then we called my dad, and he spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, <laughs> of course, they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up about two hours. And she was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She'd pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. <laughs> it was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There is no better cookie. Then, the airline broke out free beverages from huge coolers, and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice, and they were covered with powdered sugar, too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and I thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in that gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So let's just sit for a few a few moments.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.